The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Anurag Sahu, who's an adult cardiologist at Emory University Hospital. He's an associate professor of cardiology and an associate professor of radiology at the Emory School of Medicine. His areas of expertise include adult congenital heart disease, advanced cardiac imaging, and cardiac intensive care. He developed the cardiac intensive care service line at Emory University Hospital, leads the high-risk cardiac pregnancy program, is the director of the cardiac MRI and CT fellowship program, and serves on the faculty for the adult congenital heart program at Emory, which is the largest of its kind in the Southeast. He has a passion for prevention and works extensively with patients on realistic goal setting and what he believes are the five facets of maintaining health, mindset, mental health, sleep, nutrition, and mobility. Anurag, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, so, you know, your work has just been such a tremendous contribution to Emory to start a service line in the intensive care. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, what your work entails and the types of congenital heart disease that you work with? Yeah, sure. That's great. Um, so I was recruited to Emory in 2010, primarily because of my background in congenital heart disease. And, um, you know, most people think of congenital heart disease as a pediatric issue. Um, and what, what people don't realize is that there are actually more adults with congenital heart disease than there are children with congenital heart disease. So one out of every 150 adults has a congenital heart lesion. Um, and in this country, every 15 minutes, there's a child born with congenital heart disease. Uh, every year, there are 50 to 75,000 patients nationally that graduate from pediatric care to adult care. Um, and so those, these patients need care. And Emory is a very large adult congenital heart center, um, and they recruited me to work in that area. Beyond that, I work in the cardiac ICU uh, where we see obviously the sickest of the sick. Um, and ironically, that is what got me most interested in nutrition and health. Because we would, as cardiologists, we do a very good job of fixing what's broken, but it's much better to not be broken. And the biggest thing that drives failure is our nutrition, our diet, our lifestyle. Ironically, it's medications and such are helpful, but it's the nutrition piece and the diet and exercise piece and the mental health piece, that's actually the most powerful. So that's working the ICU ironically got me most interested in that. Uh, and imaging just kind of combines into everything else that I do. The heart is a phenomenal uh, organ, uh, what I think is the most complicated organ in the body. Uh, and looking at it with 3D spatial structures and cardiac MR and CT, I think provides a window um, that no other modality can. And so that's how I got uh, interested in that 
and all three of those are the reasons why Emory brought me uh, uh, over here. That's wonderful. And, you know, and I do also want to talk a little bit about the technology, but I want to first back up um, in kind of, um, you know, what got my attention was, you know, working in an ICU, ironically, taking care of people with the, you know, the best technology that we possibly can have and how that's really made you um, become more interested in the prevention piece. And and when you're talking prevention, you know, a lot of times we think of heart disease as coronary arterial disease, that classic kind where cholesterol builds up in arteries. Um, but you also have applied a lot of prevention to congenital heart disease, right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, what we used to think of as a pediatric problem is actually more of an adult problem. So, you know, in, in general terms, congenital heart disease means that you were born with a heart defect. So in simple terms, it could be a small hole in your heart. It could be a small heart valve lesion. Um, in more advanced terms, it could be that you're born blue uh, and you have a low oxygen level when you're born. You're your oxygen saturation should be above 95. Babies are born with saturations of 70s or 60s that have advanced uh, congenital heart lesions where they're missing half their heart or they have large holes in their heart or the great arteries are switched and coming off of the wrong side of the heart. Um, and so there, there's been tremendous advances in that technology, not just from a fetal diagnosis, but there have been advances in NICU care um, our surgical techniques have gotten better. Our repairs have, are being done at an earlier and earlier age. Some repairs were put off until age five or seven or we're now doing within this first uh, year of life. Um, on top of all that, there's been a lower perioperative mortality, which all leads to early, I'm sorry, increased early survival, leading to increased midterm survival which then leads to adults with congenital heart disease. That's a remarkable field. And it, it spans the spectrum to small holes in the heart to missing your heart to the, I'm sorry, not missing your heart, but missing half of your heart. <laughs> uh, and the heart kind of all hooked up in ways that you don't think are survivable, but patients do. That's amazing. So is the reason that they're now more adults with these congenital or born heart disease problems because the technology has just gotten so good at treating them that babies are surviving now into adulthood or is some of it because our detection as adults in the for adults is better and these people were just never diagnosed they had it all their life and never knew and we're finding them in adulthood yeah so that's a good question and i think it's a little bit of both though i think more of it is on just the excellent work our pediatric colleagues have done. You know, to get the first cardiac surgery ever done was a congenital heart surgery um, where they closed an ASD. And from that surgery, we blossomed as a field. You know, to give you a sense, in 1965, there were 75 percent of patients with congenital heart disease uh, were under the age of 18, and only 25 percent of were adults. And by 2010, it's completely flipped, where 70% were adults and 30 to 40% are kids. And a the vast majority of it, I have to give credit to our pediatric colleagues 
who have done all these advances. But as you mentioned, there are a lot of adults that don't even know that they have a congenital heart lesion, um, either because they didn't have great follow-up as children and they had what we call non-cyanotic heart disease. Um, so they weren't, you couldn't look at them and be like, oh man, there's something really wrong with that guy. Um, but they were otherwise normal. And then they present ironically either during pregnancy they are starting having palpitations. The work, uh, the, the cardiac work, workload needed during pregnancy can be tremendous. And if you have a heart defect, it presents challenges. So they can come during pregnancy. They can they can come to presentation during pregnancy, or you know they're going now. They're 18 or 24, and they got their first job. They have adequate access to healthcare, and they're like, I'm going to go see a doctor and get checked out. And wow, you really have this flailing heart murmur. Has anyone ever told you about that? Uh, maybe once or twice as a kid and no one ever made anything of it, you know? Um, and then they come to presentation like that. Or in the worst case scenarios, they come to presentation uh, in my ICU uh, because they're in shock from something that could have been identified way earlier. So Anurag, people with congenital heart disease are born with these diseases. And when we think of lifestyle, like you said, like nutrition, exercise, we think of prevention, but obviously if you're born with something, um, what is that role of prevention? Um, so the first point I think in prevention with congenital heart patients is something that we as physicians need to correct. You know, a lot of these children, now adults, were told at some point in their life after their surgery that they were cured from the congenital heart lesion. Um, in fact, I distinctly remember times in fellowship before I did my congenital heart rotations where I would hear my attendings say they're cured of their defect. Um, and that is simply not the case. Um, surgery for congenital heart disease palliates the heart. It identifies a problem. It aims to palliate it in a way so you can survive into adulthood. The most common, a common one, for example, is tetralogy of Fallot, where there's a hole, a large hole in the heart, the aorta is overriding to the wrong side. There's a degree of pulmonary outflow, tract obstruction. The surgery involves closing the defect, opening up the outflow tract to the lungs, and the surgeon will come out, slap the dad on the back, give the mom a hug and say, your son is, or daughter is cured. And that's the last thing, that's what they hear, but they don't, what they fail to mention or maybe mention and family forgets is that they have a very leaky heart valve and they'll show up in my clinic with severe regurgitation of their pulmonary valve. And they're like, what do you mean I need to have surgery? And I'll, and I'll say, well, you've had this your entire life. And they're like, but they told me I was cured. And so what we have to say is that you're palliated. Uh, from your defect and not necessarily cured of your defect. It still requires lifelong follow-up. Um, so that's probably the first thing. Uh, the second piece I, I get into probably with my young patients more um, is tobacco um, and vaping. Um, there is such a tremendous push on, by marketing to get kids hooked on this stuff early. Um, the, there was just a large $80 million settlement in the state of North Carolina where Juul, a large vaping company, 
paid $80 million because they were caught marketing the kits. Ironically, the suit, they, they didn't have to admit liability, but they still paid $80 million. Um, and so that's probably the next thing I focus on with them is eliminating these toxins from your body. And then the next step is food and nutrition, of course. And the role of, you know, avoiding the tobacco and the food of nutrition, how does that play out in someone who had surgical correction of their congenital defect? Um, it, sometimes it can be hard, you know, um, the, the, how do I say it? There's a lot that goes into one's body that we don't recognize is toxic for you, you know? When we think of ideal cardiovascular health um, and we think about healthy diets, people don't, people often associate things that they think are healthy, but are not. So the first thing I'll ask them is like, what do you drink? Like, man, I love this sports drink. It's awesome. I drink it every time I go work out and then I'll take out the bottle and I'll show them. I was like, you know, it has 20 grams of sugar in it. And I was like, and unless you're LeBron James, you're not burning that off, you know? Um, and we talk about, particularly in the South, uh, what, what type of sweet tea do you drink? And I start with, you put three cups of sugar or four? I don't even start with one or two. And people just don't recognize that this is a problem, right? This is just very cultural in the South. And nation and in, in, in other countries of certain drinks that are just staples of our diets that we think are either healthy for us or don't recognize that are not healthy. And what I try to emphasize in my patients is that there is nothing in life that you need to drink except water. The apple juice, orange juice, uh, Kool-Aid type drinks, None of that is healthy. Sodas are certainly not healthy. There's no such thing as a diet soda. Um, and so we, we talk extensively about that. Uh, and I, I think patients tend to be surprised when they say, what do you mean it's diet? I was like, well, actually diet sodas actually make you gain more weight than regular sodas. So if you're gonna drink a soda, you might as well get the good stuff. Um, and so we focus a lot on that. And then the other piece is you know, meal planning. Um, it is very hard to, if you're like me, I don't know what I'm having for dinner until 45 minutes before dinner time. When I open up the fridge and I look into it and I say, do I want Thai leftovers? Or do I want Chinese leftovers? Neither of those are good for me, but that's what I'll grab. Um, but if we can meal plan more effectively, cook our meals at home on a more regular basis, um, then you have a better chance of success uh, from a nutrition standpoint. Uh, so that's, those are kind of the areas that we, we talk about when it comes to food and nutrition. But I, I would say that, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask another question because I know sometimes I talk too long. Uh, most of the problems that people have with either losing weight or eating a correct nutrition plan it really has nothing to do with the food that they're eating, but more about setting boundaries for and lack of control of your time and lack of control of your schedule. 
And those, if you don't have the, that in set, you are going to make poor decisions. Not because you're a poor decision maker, but because you lack the time to do the correct thing that you know you need to do for your body. And before it's like, before you think about which diet plan you wanna go on or what new exercise fad that you wanna try, it will fail not because of your desire not to do it, but because of the lack of control you have over your, your schedule. Yeah, I mean, to your point, if you are hungry and you open the fridge, you're gonna eat the first thing that's there. Whereas the more you plan when you're not starving, um, you have more opportunity to really have something healthier ready. Um, so you can have that be the go-to. When your patients follow your advice and they, you know, have water and make um, some healthier choices around their food, what do you see different in the trajectory of their repaired um, congenital disease, like, or even in how they feel or function? Like, you know, what difference does it make? Yeah, so that's great. So the, the first thing that happens when patients remove, particularly move, remove all the sugars from their diet, is that they'll start eating healthier foods because sugar, sugary foods make you eat more sugary foods. And from a physiological standpoint, that makes you bloated and gain a lot of weight. And from what I see, when, and I'm dealing with patients that have moderate to advanced congenital heart disease, when they start following that diet, the amount of diuretics that they need goes down tremendously. So there's a diuretic, I know you're familiar with, but your audience may not be Lasix. Um, and they call it Lasix because it lasts six hours. So you take this pill and it makes you pee for like six hours. And you start at low doses, 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams. In my clinic, we're up to doses of 100 and 200 milligrams, which is the max dose. Doses higher than that can literally make you go down. Um, so we are, we are on fairly high doses of diuretic therapy, but the moment you got rid of that Georgia sweet tea, your diuretic dosing, instead of being twice a day, will, will drop to once a day. And if you continue down the path of staying away from all that sugar and such, particularly if you had a large intake, we can almost nearly eliminate the need for the diuretics. Uh, and some people are like, well, why is that a big deal? if you need a little bit of pill to get rid of some water. Well, what we're doing is we're attacking the kidneys when we do that. And we give these medicines that literally block the function of the kidney to uh, extract water and that water is lost. And the kidney likes water. It likes to save water, as you know. And then that can lead to what we call a rise in creatinine, which is a marker of kidney function. So we can actually cause harm to the kidney and lead to chronic kidney injury because of the massive amounts of diuretics we have to give someone just so they can breathe. It's not, you know, it's not uncommon for a patient. I just had a patient a couple weeks ago come to me and she's sleeping on four pillows because she cannot lay flat because of all of the fluid in her lungs. And we talked about her diet. She's like, oh, I love sweet tea. And, and I drink three diet sodas a day. Um, and I told her mom to stop buying them. Um, patient was pissed. 
Um, but they uh, stopped buying them. And three weeks later, she's down to sleeping on one pillow. Uh, and that's with me not even touching her diuretic therapy. Um, so it's very powerful if you can do that. And there's a positive feedback loop that develops once patients start seeing, man, this guy might actually know what he's talking about. Uh, and and they, there's such an enjoyment that patients have being able to do things that they thought they could no longer do. Um, they're like, well, I'm 30 years, 30 years old now and I'm doing the stuff that I do when I was 20. Um, and it's just a powerful feedback loop. Amazing. You know, it's interesting that you're describing sugar having such an impact on fluid retention. You know, we typically think of salt as the culprit, um, but just as you described, what a dramatic difference just from cutting back sugar. So um, let's go through other things that you tell your patients. Like um, you mentioned some of the advice that you give around um, diet and uh, helping congenital heart. Are there other things that you tell your patients to do where you think, wow, this really makes a difference? Um, yeah, so there's there's several. I mean, what, one is we live in a society where Instagram and Facebook very much rule our lives. You know, like um, your phone, if, if, if it's like mine, will tell you how much time you're spending on Instagram and Facebook, right? So my wife always, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get in trouble when I get home, but uh, my, my wife says, oh yeah, I don't have time to do this. Or I might say, I don't have time to do this. And what I'll naturally do is I'll grab uh, her phone. And you know, uh, iPhone has 12 hour or 18 hours of battery life. And I'll be like, well, 25% of your battery life is being spent on Facebook. So that means you're spending four to six hours on Facebook through the day. You have you have the time. You're just not choosing what to do correctly with your time. And the other reason I bring that up, not because I enjoy getting in trouble with my wife, um, is that you know I follow a lot of trainers on Facebook, and I'm sure a lot of people follow a lot of celebrities on Facebook and Instagram, and the seems like the new rage is like the before and the after picture of like what I look like before. And then three months later, I look like Adonis um, and such. And, and so people assume that if, if I just follow a hard diet or a moderate diet for three months, that I'm going to go looking like I look now to looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. And that's just not realistic. Yes, that happens for some people, but 98% of us just don't have that DNA where three months or six months of really intense diet and exercise is gonna get you from that point to that point. It is steady, long-term determination that will get you maybe halfway there over a period of one to two years. It's not a 30, 60, 90 day fix. Um, and that's hard for people. It's hard for me because um, Lord knows I, I would like to look like Adonis. Um, but it's not realistic to think that. And we have to 
get our mind out of that mindset, which is being blasted to us um, on social media and such as what's considered normal. Yeah. So when you are advising your patients on physical activity, um, how do you recommend that they do the, what they need to do? Like at what point is it impactful making a difference um, and that's just good enough because your health is improving? Like what are some parameters of how much they should be doing? Yeah, um, so I, I tell programming for exercise and such is very challenging. There's a new fad every couple of months. Um, and it can be hard to know what to do. Um, what I tell people at the beginning is that you cannot get away with doing random sporadic exercises. That jumping jacks one day, running three miles the next day, lifting weights with some bicep curls the next day, and then doing four random exercises the following week that's not an exercise plan. That's just random kind of body movements. You know? um, and for my patients, was, you're not 17 anymore. You need to have, be intelligent about your training. And that actually means doing a lot of repetitive behaviors. Um, cardiovascular health exercise, I think, is very important. Um, to kind of get the most out of that, there needs to be a incorporated resistance training um, where you're working on muscle building and kind of um, doing things to help improve your uh, overall body strength. You know, cardiologists like to talk a lot about peak VO2, which is your maximum oxygen consumption. So Lance Armstrong and and people like him have super high peak VO2s of like 60, 70. Mine is above average at 45. Patients of mine are super low in their uh, low 20s. And two people think you just get that by running 10 miles. But really what you want to do is build up your muscle strength. Because as you build up your muscle strength, that's making your Heart work harder, and all of those, and all between the muscle density you get and the uh, that increases the oxygen that your body can use and burn, and that will increase your VO2. So I, I talk to them a lot about resistance training, about not being afraid of the gym, the gym, the weight room. It, you see these guys that are like super buff. They all started somewhere. And I actually think it takes more courage for someone that's never gone into a weight room and started lifting light weights than it does for someone to try to lift 400 pounds because you are putting yourself in an uncomfortable position to get your, your body healthy. And that, I think that person deserves more admiration than the person lifting 400 pounds. And, and I go, I go to gyms now and I, I talk to the guys that lift like two, uh, three, 400 pounds. And whenever I talk to them about how they got there, they, they, they tell me like, we started lifting, we can lift half as much as you do now. 
and it, it takes time um, and they give pointers and it can be a very positive environment um, as opposed to being intimidating. Yeah, that's a really good point. You're absolutely right in that most people associate building up like your heart capacity with aerobic exercise. And we don't always associate strength resistance with cardiovascular health. Um, so Anurag, with the time we have left, um, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with the, our listeners? Um, um, so there's one area we didn't really talk about, which is okay. Um, I'm happy to come back other, other times, but um, it's pregnancy and heart, heart disease. You know, to give you a sense, when I'm running on a treadmill, I'm pumping nine liters of blood per minute. And a woman that's pregnant in her third trimester watching TV is pumping somewhere between seven to nine liters of minute of blood. And so the cardiovascular performance of a woman in third trimester pregnancy can actually be fairly demanding. Uh, and if you have a congenital heart lesion, or if you have a history of heart problems, it's very important that you follow with a cardiovascular specialist during your pregnancy. And it's also very important, I think, to recognize that a lot of women get told that it's not safe for them to have a child, and they should never try to get pregnant. That, that is a remarkably devastating thing to tell a woman of childbearing age that they cannot have children. Uh, and I'll tell you from my own personal experience that the vast majority of women I see that have been told that they cannot have children, um, I, that ends up not being the case. Uh, it may require close monitoring by a multidisciplinary team, um, but the vast majority of women can have, that have heart conditions can have children in a safe manner. That's not to say that they're not significant numbers that can't patients with advanced heart dysfunction, patients with prosthetic valves, uh, patients with uh, history of um, pulmonary hypertension, Marfan syndrome. There, there is a, certainly a list of women that should not have pregnancy, um, but if someone ever tells you that you can't, they need to be able to explain that very thoroughly and it may be worth getting a second opinion for because it, it's a very complex topic. Yeah, we're going to have to have you come back to really delve into that because it's a huge topic and obviously super important um, and also touching on your other area of expertise of imaging for heart um, health because there's been an explosion of available tests. So we'll have to tap into uh, what you can share with us at a later time and, and talk a little bit more. Um, but Anurag, thank you so much for sharing all this information and a little bit about the work that you do. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate all the work that you do. I, I had that opportunity to listen to several of your podcasts before I came on and I learned a ton and I actually have a list of three or four that I'm going to listen to uh, over the weekend. So I appreciate all of it. Okay, well, thank you so much. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.